Isaiah 43, 18 through 19, this is our new series, All Things New, um, and we've been walking in this idea of what it means to be new, and our kind of uh, key verse has been this, Isaiah 43, 18 through 19, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, see, I'm doing a new thing, now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. How many of you have the Bible app, Bible app on your phone? Do you know what yesterday's verse was? This verse, this verse. I don't know if anybody caught that. We're in this series and we're talking about in the new year, we, Mark killed it January 1st for those that were here talking about resolutions, right? And this is a time of year that all of us really, if not most of us, set these new goals and we want new things in our life and we're saying, okay, 2023 is going to be a better year. And we've been challenging uh, ourselves first and foremost and then our family here that that newness only comes through one avenue. Newness, if we attempt it by ourselves, which I've done about a million times in my life, uh, inevitably fails, inevitably falls away. I think the statistic was what? That like one in seven last a month in their New Year's Revolution. It was worse than that. Where Mark, you would know. You don't have a mic, but uh, it was bad. It wasn't good. It was a low statistic. It was not something we want to be a part of. Uh, but what we're believing in this series is that God himself is always making you, me, and our situations, circumstances, lives, souls, and spirits new. But the question is, not if he's doing it, do we see it? It's never been if he's doing it, it's do we perceive it? This is why the prophet Isaiah, thousands of years ago, asked the question, hey, God is doing something, but do you perceive it? And we're attuning our spirits in a way that we're actually acknowledging and experiencing the newness offers that Jesus offers, or, or maybe are we missing it? I've got a little testimony of newness just in the last few days. One thing we've been trying to do with this life stories movement and getting y'all up here and sharing stories, I got a few today, is that we don't believe testimony is just when God saved you 32 years ago and you had this miraculous conversion and then you've just been doing the Christian thing for 32 years. Testimony is what he did this morning. Testimony is what he did yesterday. Testimony is how he's moving your heart currently. And I have a little, little mini testimony. No, no, no testimonies mini. Don't let someone tell you that. But I have a testimony even just from this week. I've been in a little bit of a rut. If you know me, I'm a chipper fella, okay? I typically have a lot of energy, and not many things can make me unhappy, even if they're bad situations. And yet this week, for three or four days, I just found myself in a little bit of a rut. My wife called it out. Some friends called it out. Even my mother, my mother came over Yesterday morning, and within five minutes, she was like, do you want me to leave? Is there something wrong? And I was like, no. Do I, do my, do I have like a resting bee face or something like that? What am I doing, you know? Don't, don't spell the word out, okay? <laughs> resting butt face. <clears throat> and I, I recognized that something was stirring in me. Something was wrong in me. So yesterday, I just spent, honestly, just a little time with Jesus. Just like him and me talking for a few minutes. And you know what I think he showed me? That I was under spiritual attack because, God, or because the enemy didn't like the message for today. And I've been learning a lot recently as we've walked into this transition. And grace is moving in new vision and waves and all this stuff. That, that the enemy attacks people he's threatened by. Is the enemy attacking you this morning? Did you walk in feeling heavy? Did you walk in feeling weighed down? That means he's worried about you. And I decided yesterday right around noon that I wasn't going to let him hamper down what God wanted to say. I wasn't going to let the enemy get after me because he's worried about me. I'm going to continue to be the person he's worried about. I don't know about you, but that's what we're here for this morning. So I don't know who this message is for. I think it's for a lot of us. 
Uh, but the enemy didn't want this one spoken. And I can promise you, I don't, I'm not in that rut this morning. <laughs> that rut's old news. New testimony, he's doing new things. What's he doing for you? Are you seeing it? Are you perceiving it? So similar to this wave of vision we're in for this year and, and part of last year, victory, it seems apparent to me that if we aren't perceiving what God is doing, then we also aren't perceiving the victory that's available to us. And that's where we want to walk. Um, so I have a cool little, again, it's another testimony, I got a bunch for you, y'all, uh, of how this message even came to be. So how many of you know what passion is? Passion conference. It's also a church. It's also a church. Connor, I saw you raise your hand. I'm so sorry that you didn't get to come. Uh, passion is, a, is the largest young adult Christian gathering in the entire world, 18 to 25-year-olds, and it's typically hosted in Atlanta, Georgia. The last six to seven years, we have brought students down, and we did the same this year. I got a few pictures of our trip. Pop. That's the bus. We got a sweet bus. Everybody's falling asleep, snoring. I posted pictures of like everybody asleep, and then they got me back. Okay, uh, this was us in <clears throat> this was in North Carolina, I believe. We stopped at some place. There was a boot factory. What states that? Y'all know what I'm talking about. It was the boot factory, and I was I was appalled at how many of my young adults wanted to go in there. Okay, <laughs> I'm a city boy. All right, a couple more. Uh, this is I'm not. I, I shouldn't throw out names. My mother. This is my boy River. This is my boy River Fornoff, just worshiping Jesus. I couldn't not take a picture of it. Oh, that's the arena. I think there was 25,000 young adults, something like that, just praising Jesus. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, next year, it's in an arena that holds 71,000. Uh, yeah, praise God, praise God. Uh, they say the young generation's falling away from Jesus. I don't know who you watching. You should hang around my squad a little more. Uh, and then God gave me this. So Elevation Worship was playing. How many love Elevation? Come on, where are my Elevation fanboys and girls? I know, I know. Grazing the gardens. They were singing the song, Same God, and I'm worshiping, right? I'm worshiping, and God just started downloading. You ever have that happen, like, out of nowhere? It's not even relevant to the song at all, and he starts downloading. And it was so, like, overwhelming that in the middle of the song, I sat down, I started taking these notes. If you see on the far left, up on the top, it says, Victorious Contentment. God gave me that phrase very directly for today. I started writing, I took about three pages of notes. There was a point in time where they switched and they were literally singing Graves in the Garden. This is a headbanger of a Christian song. Everybody around me is like, Graves in the Garden. And I'm just sitting there like jotting notes, looking like a weirdo. And that's what we're here for today, those weirdo notes. Y'all excited? So that's how uh, God downloaded this message to me, and I think he gave it very clearly. So before we get into what I felt like God was speaking and the elaboration of what he put on these pages just a week ago, Let's talk to him first. How about it? Pray with me. Oh, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that oh, even in my heart and soul, I, I feel newness. I thank you, God, that you are the only person that brings newness. I thank you that there's no shame for the times we don't feel new. You don't weigh guilt on us for the times that we're failing. You're just gently nudging us that there's better for us. There's more for us. There's new for us. That those of us are, that are in you, the new creation has come. The old has gone. So I pray this morning, God, that we would walk out of this place feeling newness in you. From the littlest things to the biggest things. From someone who just needs freedom from a bad attitude for, to someone who needs to come from death to life this morning. I ask that there would be newness in this room this morning. And I thank you, Father, that you're present, you're here, you're active. Would you help us perceive it? We love you, we trust you, we offer this morning up to you, in Jesus' name. And all God's people sing, amen, come on now, amen. I'm waiting for it, amen.
Amen. Okay, y'all been practicing. I missed the Tuesday night singing practice, apparently. I'll get invited next time. So this prompting that you see up on the screen is cool. I don't know how God speaks to you. I don't know how he prompts you. Often this is how he prompts me. I'm not hearing necessarily loud words from heaven. I'm not, um, it's usually uh, he just, I call it downloading. He brings something that was not there, puts it there, and makes it extremely clear. Here's the thing about God. God is not a God of confusion, but of clarity. I had a conversation with a young adult at this trip who was really feeling confused about some stuff because some people had spoken some things into him. And I simply said this, man, if it's confusing, God didn't say it. I think it's as simple as that. If it's confusing, God didn't say it. Now, that's a difference of if it's hard. God will say hard things. You might not like it, but if it's confusing, it's not from him. He's a God of clarity. So he downloaded this and he prompted it and I took these notes um, and I'm thinking about loss and failure and disappointment and apathy and confusion and how our culture has so many of these things and what it does is it makes us discontent. It makes so many of us, the culture as a whole, discontent. We want what's next. We want better. The phrase, the grass is greener on the other side, is a phrase for a reason. We live in an instant gratification, sensory pleasing, I come first type of world. And church, whether or not we know, that seeps into us. And because of these types of things, we as a people, um, 100% myself included, struggle to be content with what we have, always in pursuit of what we do not. So we're going to be in Philippians 4 as the passage that God led me to. Philippians 4, verses 4, 1 through 13. Some of you already will recognize these verses as very popular verses. And yet we're not going to talk about any of the popular stuff that we typically would. So it'll be up on the screens for you. Philippians 4, starting in, chapter, starting in verse 4 to verse 13. I'll read it for you. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. At last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had not, no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So cool to me that God led me to this passage because these 10 verses contain some of the most encouraging well-known scripture in the entire Bible. Specifically verse 13, most people, even non-Christians, could quote to you Philippians 4.13. Uh, NIV says, I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. What's more popularly known, King James, New King James, ESV, is I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. It means the same thing. <clears throat> 
And while this is uh, such an encouraging passage, it says don't be anxious about anything. Give your requests to God. He'll cover them. The peace of God will transcend and guard your heart. Noble, pure, right, admirable things. Think about those things because they're better. Put all of this into practice. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. It's undoubtedly one of the most encouraged. Even as I read it now, I'm encouraged. And yet, family... I read the things it says to be and the things to do and the ways to act, yet we struggle with anxiety. We struggle with gentleness. We struggle with peace. We struggle putting God's teachings into practice. We struggle to think about admirable, noble, true, right things. And we definitely don't always act like we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And as I reflected on all of this, God just highlighted that I had missed a key instrumental posture that Paul had, which helped him to do all these things, and it was that he was content. We read Philippians 6 and 7, and we love the encouragement to not be anxious because we have a lot of that, family. We have a lot of that. And we get down and we say, yes, I can do all things. Even I'm feeling down. I got it on my basketball shoes. I'm going to dunk today for the first time. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and yet we miss that almost seemingly the base for him to have all these things outside of Jesus himself was that he was content. He was content. I wonder if I were to ask us, if we had to even rate on a scale of one to ten, how content are we in our life? I don't think there's going to be a lot of tens in the room. In a room full of... Hopefully, Jesus-loving, God-following people. I'd be willing to bet a lot of us aren't even out of five. And then we wonder at times why I can't get rid of anxiety. I struggle with peace. I don't, frankly, feel like I can do squat, much less all things. And Paul was content. Look at verse 12 specifically. I love it. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed, whether hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. So much of this was available to Paul, he's saying, through learning to be content. I love what my sister Robin said this morning. Uh, It was already in the notes, so thank you, Holy Spirit. She said in our prayer time before the service that Paul didn't get this like mind-blowing, in-the-moment, spiritual bombshell of contentness that just never left. He says he had to learn it. How many of you got kids? How many of them went through school? How many of you are learning how to be a parent? How many of you have 30-year-olds still learning how to be a parent? Okay. Man, I look at the learning process, whether it's school or whatever it may be, it takes time. It takes day in, day out. It takes hours. And he says he learned to be content. Now check this out. Paul, of all people, of all people, had every reason to be discontent. Every reason not to be peaceful. Every reason to be anxious. Every reason to not be gentle to people persecuting him. Every reason to not think he could do all of this through Christ, to not think lovely thoughts. This man had been beaten, shipwrecked, stuck at sea, persecuted, put in jail, eventually killed. Check out Romans 2, or 2 Corinthians 11. He details all these things that he went through. And yet, being content with where he was and how God was using him made him able to have all these things. It made him able to be able to receive the truths that he wrote here, even though the situations he was in didn't seem like there was a lot to be content about. You guys see where I'm going with this already? 
I don't know what's causing discontentment in your life. I got some things in my life that cause discontentment. I got some family situations that cause discontentment. I got uh, even just some personal stuff that, if I'm not careful, can easily cause discontentment. Uh, Even just mindsets or ways I think about certain things or people that can cause discontentment. And yet, this is making it so clear with Paul as our example that our situations have never been how we receive contentment. So I'm going to sit in this passage in Paul's life. And I want to identify how he was victorious and content in situations that many of us probably would not be. And hopefully we can take that and apply it to our current lives and learn how to be victorious in contentment. So to learn the way that Paul did this, I think there's three aspects that we're going to pull out. It was cool in our pastor's meeting. I already had my direction. I mean, God had downloaded it. I had my three points. And Mark, uh, wherever he's at, the second time I'm calling you out, you travel too much, bro. I never know where you're at. He just said, hey, man, what you have is so, so good. Have you recognized that you've, like, put a blueprint, put a blueprint of what, where, and when? I had no idea that I had done it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three aspects of contentment that we tend to search for. The what, the where, and the when. What are we meant to have contentment in? Things, people, achievements. Where do we go to find that contentment? Like, like where can I get this stuff? Where do I need to move to? What career or relationship do I need to jump to? And then when? How long do I got to wait for contentment? How long till I finally get this? How long till I finally see this happen? So I'm going to leave the scripture up here and we're going to come right out of verses 12 and 13 to start. Paul, who's just acknowledged that his situations are not excellent, in fact, they're very poor. He's acknowledged hunger, he's experienced need, he's suffered in many ways, he's learned to be content whatever the circumstances. It says that he learned the secret. I want to sit on that word for a second, the secret. I looked it up in a few versions to make sure that the NIV didn't just like weirdly, uh, you know, translate that. You know, sometimes, I don't know, some of y'all read the message full time, so I don't know what to tell you. Ben, I had to go back to him, sorry. I tuned out when you started talking about the message. Where are you? I can't see you. You're like eight feet tall. How do I not see you? Secret is in most translations. The word secret is in most translations. Amen. There's a secret, guys. Here's the thing. We love the idea of a secret. We love uh, uh, an easy way to find things, to get almost a free pass, like a free card that we didn't know about. We love secrets. I'll tell you a few reasons I think we love secrets in our culture. One, we love to gossip. Man, it is wild to me, and there are, of course, times I fall into this. Luckily, I think I've surrounded myself specifically with God-loving men, where if we start to gossip about someone, we will stop each other. We will literally say the words, I think we're getting into gossip, we should stop. Like, I did that with Alex Gilbert just last week. We started talking about some people that we feel certain ways about, who we think have acted all kinds of wrong, and we stopped each other. Like, this isn't actually beneficial. This isn't exhorting anybody. This isn't, this isn't helping our souls. We love to gossip, though. So we love to slander people. We love to talk about people. We love to make ourselves feel good by discovering things about other people, and we justify it under what we're just talking. No, you've literally said 14 bad things about them in the last 90 seconds. What do you mean? We love to gossip. That's why we love secrets. I think that's reason number one, because it's juicy. Oh, man, I know something about you, and it makes me feel good about me. I think that's one reason we love Secrets, I think uh, a second part is that secrets are an easy way to accomplish something. 
So the new year, right, we've been talking about this. Uh, uh, the new year for us, over half of us at least, probably maybe more, have committed to healthier diets and exercise. How many of you, let's keep it the whole way hot. We're an honest, open, transparent church. How many of you committed to some level of healthier eating or uh, exercise? Some of you are just dirty liars. <laughs> All right. All right, now let's try one more time. How many of you, this, we're a hot church. There's no shame or condemnation. We will laugh at you. How many of you already gave up? Thank you, brother. I already half gave up, y'all. Man, I have been genuinely eating a little bit healthier. I've exercised every single day of the new year, sometimes twice. Mm -hmm, you know what I'm saying? All right? Uh, and then yesterday, I ate almost a whole pizza. I'm not lying to you, dude. I did. I did. We were at a birthday party, and I was like, there's pizza. or The options of pizza are nothing. Well, God's a God of abundance, so I ate four pieces. I'm not joking, I did. I felt very full afterwards, and I, I was slightly ashamed of myself, and God said, grace on you, Philip. <laughs> but don't do it again. But we love this, right? We love this cheat sheet, right? So when I think about diets and, and exercise, what do we do when we're like, well, I want to lose weight. I, I'm, I'm committed to eating healthier. I haven't been feeling great. You, we get on the internet, and we look up the quickest diet possible. We look up the exercise that will get us the skinniest, the fastest. Why? We want the secret. Man, I'm about to be so confessional to y'all this morning. I hope that when you hear me speak, it makes you go be confessional to other people and stop hiding all that sin. I have literally searched diet pills and typed, what pills will make me skinny fast? <laughs> I'm about to ask how many of y'all have done it, and you won't let be laughing anymore. But why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we want the secret, right? We want the quick way out. We want the easy way out. And God, through Paul right here, says, hey, I've learned the secret. That should excite us a little bit. That should be like, okay, there's something that, that Paul has learned that I can use to, to, to grow. How about one more example of why we love secrets? How many of you read the book The Secret? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Well, I think that's a good thing. You all don't read. Wonderful. Um, the Secret was a really, really popular book. It sold 30 million copies. For books, that's a lot. Not a lot of books sell more copies than that. In fact, after it, it uh, came out and was super popular, it got translated into 50 languages, it was made into a movie and grossed over $300 million. But get this, I looked up the book ratings. <laughs> Goodreads only gave it a 3.7. Low-key wasn't even a good book. Why'd so many of us buy it? We love the idea of a secret. We love it. It entices us. Book doesn't even have to be good. And you know what the book was about? The secret to finding joy. Hmm. Hmm. And Paul here is saying, hey, family, I've learned it. I've learned the real secret. I've learned the real way we can find contentment. It's not through a book. It's not through a person other than one person. It's not through any of these avenues in the world that we find. It's not in my circumstances. It's not in my suffering. It's not in my situation it's in the spirit of God. The first point is this. The secret is trusting the spirit, not our situations. It's right after he says that he's found this secret to be content in all circumstances that we see one of the most well-known Bible verses ever. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul is following up the secret to contentment, the secret to gentleness, the secret to peace, the secret to a healthy thought life is trusting the spirit of God that was sent to us when Christ left instead of the easier solution, which is trusting the situation surrounding us for our contentment. And this seems elementary to the Christian, right? 
at least 70 of you just judged me thinking, okay, Phil, really, the buildup for that point? And let me challenge you, let me challenge me, if we're told this is the secret and we believe this is basic, why are we still struggling? Why is it that we come into church sometimes and if someone's like, hey, Jesus loves you and trusting him can change your life. And you walk out thinking, I hear that every week. And yet your life looks the same as last week. It's because you don't really perceive it. Oh, we're talking about God's doing new things. Do you perceive it? You should be able to hear the gospel, the plain gospel, every single week, and it changed your life every single week. I'll tell you one thing about being in church for a while at this point. I've been probably actively involved for about nine to ten years, been on staff for five or six now, and I'm in a lot of church stuff. I'm around a lot of God's people. And one of the biggest temptations I've seen being a pastor is becoming apathetic about the gospel. It not being life-changing for me anymore. Me forgetting. It's not even these big cardinal sins necessarily. It's not struggles at times with this, that, or the other. It's not even dealing with people, man. People are difficult, but I love people. I think it's just me forgetting why I'm even doing this. I wonder how many of us show up to church every week and the gospel hasn't changed us for years. The secret is trusting the spirit, not our situations. Like, why aren't we rejoicing always if this is a, a normal truth? If, if trusting the spirit, not your situations, is, is well, that, Phil, that's, that's obvious. That, well, then why aren't we rejoicing? Why do we have regular anxiety? Why do so many in the room struggle with the thoughts in their heads? Why do so many of us uh, just act so negatively and think so negatively when this says to think about beautiful and noble things? Why do so many of us not live like we can do all things through Christ? Maybe it's because we claim trusting Jesus is repetitive and basic, but we aren't doing it. Sure, we've believed that Jesus is who he says he is, and we trust that we're saved by grace through faith, and in the end, that's the most important thing you could do in your whole life. But further trust that he can actually make us content amidst our circumstances is not a reality for many of us yet. And that's what he wants to give you, even this morning. Contentment that maybe there's a level to this, which this morning we have to step further into. There's a level to this where we haven't trusted fully yet. There, there's, hey, we say, yes, Jesus, your Lord, yes, I love you, and yet I have this pile of things I'm not trusting you with yet. And because of those, we're discontent. I would challenge you this morning, and, I, and this is an encouragement because I've been doing some inventory. Whatever you are discontent in, you haven't given to him yet. Whatever is affecting your, your moods and your, your daily rhythms and your anxieties and all this different stuff, that's something you have not submitted to the king yet. Because he says when you learn to be content, the rest, this, the, all this follows. You won't be anxious. Like anxiety will start to just, the rut I was in earlier this week. Do you know how easy it is to sit in those things? Oh, well, I'm feeling bad. And, you know, people are noticing, so I'm just going to feel worse. And when I feel worse, I'm going to be in a bigger rut. And then I'm just going to start avoiding people because then it's easy. Oh, come on now. You want to know why we're such an isolated culture? Because we don't like to talk about anything. We don't like to confess things. We feel like it makes us weak. And then we just dig our hole deeper. It was funny, too, because with the rut I was in this week, uh, I specifically felt convicted by God to text the friends I was with to apologize that I had been off. And, and my immediate instinct, my fleshly instinct was like, what, what the heck do I have to apologize for? I'm allowed to have an off day. Like, I'm allowed to not be happy Phil all the time. I just wanted to sit in bed all day. Anybody just have those days? You know what I'm saying? 
I'm allowed to do that. And he was like, yeah, that's cool. You are allowed to do that. Is that who you want to be? Sure, you got that freedom. If you want to dig the hole deeper, go ahead. Be isolated. Don't be confessional. Don't be transparent. Go ahead, Phil. I'll let you. And whenever you're ready to get out, I'll pull you right about. But just remember, the deeper you dig the hole, the harder it is to get out. Yeah, that was for somebody because I haven't even barely touched the point yet. Family, if, if grace is your home, that's amazing. If not, that's okay too. But I need you to find a church home that repetitively reminds you to trust Jesus week in and week out, over and over and over and over and over again. When you think you don't need it anymore or the weeks you know you need it desperately, you need it all the same every single week. I don't know what your situation is, but he does. Trust the Spirit not the situation. Don't let the situations and the circumstances dictate the person who says he's in control of all of them. So what situations in your life have been stealing your contentment? Take an inventory this morning. And maybe God via the Holy Spirit wants to challenge us that we've been waiting for the wrong thing when the secret has already been given to us. So I think that's the what. I think that's the what of contentment. The what is not that we need to find something new. It's not a new situation. It's not a new circumstance. It's trusting him amidst them. And victorious contentment will come from that. So the next is where? The next is where? I'm going to jump back to verse 1 of this passage. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Verse 1 in Philippians 4. I love this. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, I'm going to stop there. It's not even the full verse. You whom I love and long for. He says to the church in Philippi, it's my favorite book because it's got my name in it. It's not selfish. You, <laughs> you, <laughs> stop it, Igor. You whom I love and long for. Now, the context is pretty important because this is a church, um, like Paul planted, it's estimated around 20 churches, something like that. This is one of the 20 that he had planted. He would go, he would travel, he would spend time in areas, he would do life with people, he'd worship with people, he'd invest in people. He would teach them the gospel, he'd pour his heart out, and then he would keep going. He would plant the church, he would love on them, he would, he would uh, kind of like uh, conjoin himself in some ways with them. He would have a deep love for these people. It literally says in the beginning of this chapter alone, who I love and long for. He uses the same verbiage numerous other times in scripture, which is interesting. Romans, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, he uses the same Greek word longing. And every time it means effectively, I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. And I thought about this, and I'm like, man, Paul, at no point in his life, at least post-Damascus, when he was saved, at no point really had the opportunity to just be with people. He was on mission, right? He was planting, 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 traveling, 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 until he was killed for his faith. And what we can see via his use of this Greek word is that he had a clear desire to be certain places. He wanted to be, at times, Places other than where he was. He had, a, he had an internal, maybe fleshly desire, a longing to be somewhere, and yet he knew he couldn't go because God had placed him elsewhere. And he trusts that's the best situation. So my point for the where of contentment, the where of contentment is this. The grass is greenest where God planted you. I thought the person blowing their nose was saying amen. 
I was like, that was a loud amen. They liked that one. <laughs> Thank you. Did you blow your nose too? You're allowed to blow your nose in here. I didn't make you feel weird. Sorry. I'll, I'll blow my nose up front. We're together in this. The grass is greenness where God planted you. Let me explain. I truly believe that if God is fully sovereign over every aspect of our lives, if he was sovereign over Abraham and Sarah not being able to have a baby, if he was sovereign over Joseph being sold into slavery, if he was sovereign over Rahab being a prostitute, if he was sovereign over Job's horrible suffering, if he was sovereign over his own son being murdered on a cross, then the answer to your contentment is not being somewhere else. Then the answer to your contentment is not being somewhere else. I want to give you a couple examples of instances in my life of, of experiencing or, or even have the temptation of this grass is greener on the other side type of mentality. Uh, mentality. Marriage is one, okay? So first and foremost, I was, I, I, like, I had my, my one toe into the idea of marriage, okay? When Jess and I were like, <clears throat> I don't even know what you want to call it, courting, I guess, uh, and she was like, we should have been married seven years ago, um, and I was like, give me seven more, okay? No, for real, I struggled. I struggled, I fought it, I don't know why. I like pushed and pushed and pushed. I had this fear of like, well, what if it's not the right decision? What if something's better in the future? What if, I, what if you know, I'm, what if I meet Mrs. Wright the day after I get married? That's a horrible, you know, predicament. And I remember the day that I was praying about it and God was like, shut up, what are you doing? We got married, but even in marriage, I think any of us can attest to this, it's easy to let your mind go, well, what would it be like over there? Well, their marriage looks really healthy, and we're struggle-busting right now. Well, they don't seem to fight about the things that we fight about. Well, let's just be the whole way H-O-T, she's H-O-T. Okay, you know what I mean? It's okay to admire beauty, by the way. God made us. It's about what you do with that admiration. Yeah, we'll talk about that a different day. I often think, I'm like, you know, what else could Jess possibly want? Why is that the loudest thing you respond to all day? <laughs> and, and as much as I'm joking, I'd be naive to think that there aren't times where she's like, well, he treats her better than Phil's treating me right now. You know, I see health in their marriage that I can't, I see, oh, this one's really hard for Christians and I fall into this. I see a spiritual connection between those two that I don't know that me and my spouse have. I'll give you another example. Glad that that one hit. <laughs> My sister Lily, I didn't ask permission to share this. I don't think she'd care though. She also doesn't watch this church. So that, what, what a jerk. <clears throat> um, she uh, was one of those people, you, you, you know, you're in high school, right? We've all hopefully been there. If you didn't get your GED, that's okay. It's still available until the day that you die, okay? You're in high school and one of the most common things I would hear is like, I just want to get out of York. I just can't wait to get out of York. Like, I just remember so many of my friends were like, the minute I graduate, I'm out of here. And I ne never really felt that way. I don't know why. I mean, I like to travel. Jess and I travel a lot. But I, in some ways, this has always felt like home to me a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but this was interesting. My sister was one of those people. My sister, my middle sister, she's like a world traveler. She's been all over the place. She has been to Spain for an entire year. She spent three months in Germany. She, uh, yeah, she's been all over the place. Now she lives in Ohio. She, she moved to Dayton, Ohio, okay? 
seven of you have been to Dayton, you know where I'm going with this. She moved to Dayton, Ohio. In my head, I was like, I was like, okay, she found her place. She wanted to get out of York because York's just a bunch of cornfields and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I went to Dayton, Ohio for the first time to visit her. It is a significantly worse version of York, okay? <laughs> there are more cornfields, less people, more rednecks. It is what it is. Nothing, nothing's wrong with that. Eh? Playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. But for real, I remember I was with Jess and we're driving. I was like, where are we? Where is this college? And I just remember thinking, man, she wanted to get out of York so bad. Why? She thought the grass was greener. And she found home there. Don't get me wrong. She has a good job now. She met Boo. You know, hopefully they get married soon. He's doing what I, I was doing. He's got one toe in. Matt. We, we've, <laughs> that was probably inappropriate. <laughs> We have talked about these things, okay? Um, but I think there's this mentality, right, right? Even as young people, well, if I can go somewhere else, it'll be better. If I can escape this family situation, it'll be better. If I can go somewhere that fits more my personality, it'll be better. The grass is greener over there. And yet, if we look at biblical instances, if we look at how people suffered for the gospel, I think about John 16, In this world you will find trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Uh, if these things aren't enough to convince us that running from our circumstance may not be the answer, let's look at Proverbs 20, 24. I love this verse. A person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand them? The grass family is not, I'm not saying don't find a, a good future. I'm not saying your home might not be here. That's not my point here. My point is the grass isn't magically greener there. The grass is greenest exactly where God puts you because he directed every step and we don't understand them at all. And I'm kind of glad because if I could understand all my steps, I'd feel a lot more that my life was a whole train wreck. <laughs> Anybody relate to that? But the Bible's clear that God is over every direction. He's, he's in each situation, each decision. And while we do have our own choices to make, he already knows them. And the question we're asked is then how can anyone understand their own way? So maybe, family, our issue hasn't been that we need something new, a new place, a fresh start. Our issue is we're too busy trying to understand our own way instead of trusting the one who paved it. I see this in young people specifically all the time, and that makes sense because in young people, you're trying to figure out your whole future. I mean, you've got so much ahead of you. You've got to make college decisions, life decisions, relationship decisions, career decisions, and I watch, I watch. I did it myself. I'm still doing it in some ways. Like, like well, I have to figure out my future. I have to just grip it hard enough and be anxious enough about it and let it stress me out enough and post on social media enough about it, and then I'll understand it. And maybe, maybe all of us are trying so hard, we're so busy trying to understand our own way instead of trusting the one who paved it for you. The grass often is not greener in other places. And if you know Jesus and you're attempting to follow him, I really believe that God has planted you where you need to be to influence who you are meant to influence. I think that if we all just ran away from what we didn't like, and ran away from the places we didn't want to be, who would be the testimony for those still stuck in those places? Some of you have probably walked through hard things where someone was able to influence your life because they had been there too. Had they run away from their circumstance thinking it was better elsewhere, they couldn't have influenced you. 
I have people in my life that I'm grateful they walked through hard things and didn't run away because they were able to change my life. Do you want to be that for other people? If God directs each step, then maybe the hard steps are meant to be part of your story, and part of your story is going to point other people to Jesus. The grass might not look green where you currently are, family, but look at the harvest it could produce. A quote Jeff gave me to close out the where uh, about finding contentment and happiness comes from Abraham Lincoln, one of our favorite forefathers, says this so simply, most folks are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. <laughs> Not about where you go, what you do, where you find it, how you find it. You're about as happy as you make up your mind to be right now. And I will take it a step further because Abraham Lincoln, I believe, was a believer. Only one person can help you make your mind up about that. The one who paved every step. And that is for you. So that's the where. We've got the what of contentment. We've got the where of contentment. And our last is the when. Our last is the when. I look at Paul and I see him writing these letters to the churches that he planted. And this letter specifically, family, Philippians. He's writing this letter from prison. So that's important context. Uh, he's not writing this laying in a field eating a, a, you know, a ham bone with someone massaging his feet, okay? He's in prison, being persecuted, writing this letter to his, his, his ch the churches he had planted. And, and if you didn't know that, the book of the Bible, uh, this book of the Bible that was written to the church and put into the Bible, uh, it was why he was in prison. And it would have been so easy, I think, in this instance for him to think that contentment, him to think that victory by extension would be found in the future because his current circumstances weren't good. Meaning it would have been easy for him to be like, okay, I do believe God, I'm trusting him, but right now I'm in prison and my contentment ain't gonna be here. I gotta wait till I get that bail bond and then I'm gonna get out and and then I'm going to be content. And yet he wasn't. He was content right here. He's in this prison still fulfilling his mission. Oh, man, some of you, some of us are in situations, maybe even call them prisons, that you don't realize the mission doesn't stop. He's in prison, and he's writing this letter, and I'm just going to go right into the point of the when. Victory isn't in the next, it's in the now. Paul teaches us this valuable lesson while, while writing this letter to the church. Uh, again, and you are the church if you are in Jesus. So this letter is to you uh, by extension. That victorious contentment in the Lord is not about the next comfortable step. It's available right now. And I think we like that idea. I don't think there's anybody in this room that as I'm listing scripture and speaking, uh, you know, pretty uh, boldly that you're going to disagree with me. And yet our lives don't reflect it. And yet we're not experiencing it real time. I'm not experiencing it real time all the time. And I think some of the problem is that this instant gratification culture, this give it to me now culture, that I'm not satisfied what I have culture. Like here's how I want to define our culture. The deadly pursuit of more. The deadly, that word is very intentional. The deadly pursuit of of more. If I don't have these things, I can't be content. If I don't have this position, I can't be content. If I don't have this relationship, I can't be content. If my bank doesn't look like this, if my social media ain't popping, if my country's leaders don't reflect my beliefs, if I'm not healthy, if my family's turmoiled, if I'm not achieving things at this specific rate, if I don't have this stuff, then I can't be content. And while I don't think many of us, again, myself included, would admit to living like this, I can look at any discontentment I have on a day-to-day -day basis and tie it to this. Until I have more, I can't be more content. 
And while I have less, I will be what? Less content. It's deadly. J.D. Rockefeller, who was, most of you probably know who he was, uh, in 1937 was worth $1.4 billion. You do some math on that with inflation rates, okay? My man rich. 1937, he was worth $1.4 billion. That covered around 2% of the entire U.S.'s GDP for my, my accountants in the room. 2% of the entire country. One man. One man. And when asked in an interview how much money is enough, he said, just a little more. Just a little more. Family, this, this deadly pursuit of more for a believer, and I think for anybody, is a lie in a way the devil is fueling your feelings of defeat. The anxiety, the lack of peace, the not feeling like you can do it, the, the depression, the oppression, whatever it may be, the loneliness, all like, like this pursuit of I need something else, I need more, is the devil fueling those feelings. And we see it everywhere. This isn't even a question in my opinion. You could prove this with statistics even. I don't think you need those either. Someone who had more than everyone else. He had achieved everyone else's monetary goals. He had all the stuff other people wanted. He went to all the places people wished they could go. His answer was just a little more. Makes me think of celebrities like Robin Williams. Maybe it's not about money. That dude seemed joyful, did he not? That dude seemed happy. You know how I many people are chasing happy? He seemed like he had it. Do we see how it's not in the next, it's in the now. It's not in a pursuit of more. It's in, it's in the more, the never-ending more that he offers us. He, Jesus Christ, can offer you more in this second than any job can ever offer you. Ever. Jesus Christ, right now, in this moment, if you let him in, if you trust him, if you just hear from him, he can offer you contentment and stability that no relationship can ever give you. He can offer you love that no person can ever even look at you close to with. And yet how many of us just want more and it makes us miss what we've already been given. I don't want to be that type of person and I am. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like the go-getter type. I want, I want to do this and achieve these things and launch these things and I say yes to everything. It's one of my like, character flaws because my wife tells me all the time and now Jeff's starting to get on me about it. You know, that's kind of annoying. And he's like, Phil, you got to learn how to say no. And I'm like, well, you've been talking to your wife who's been talking to my wife. I'm not dumb. <laughs> I know it's true. <laughs> no, Jeff's protecting me, which is good. And yet, and yet, I've just been learning and seeing, oh my goodness, everything I need is right here. Everything I need is right here. If I don't accomplish that thing, if I don't achieve that thing, that's okay. That's never where my worths come from. That's never where my contentments come from. That's never where my joy will come from. And I think the truth for us, family, is that we have already been given everything and beyond of what we could possibly hope or imagine. We were lost, broken, hopeless, in need of a Savior who was sent to us. And because of that, there is no next. There is no next. You can keep finding next, but it's not the right next. There is no next. Oh, man, I, God, like, downloaded this phrase, and it's not even my notes. So thank you, Holy Spirit. So often we think contentment is on the other side of something. The only thing contentment is on the other side of is the stone that was rolled away from that tomb, and it's available to you today. That's the only thing contentment's on the other side of, and he moved it for you. Hmm. Everything we need for contentment and victory is here, it's now. I'm not saying it's easy, I'm saying it's available. 
We don't need perfect circumstances. We don't need better situations. We don't need more money or a better relationship or more followers or a healthier body or a happier family. We need him. He truly makes all things new. And I hope today you leave today even just just with a little bit of that, a little bit of the newness, a little spark in your heart and mind and soul that he can move something in your life because he already moved everything for you. The secret is trusting the spirit, not our situations. The grass is often greener where God planted us and the victory isn't in the next family. It is truly now. Let's pray. Father, I I just admit that I believe this truth and don't live it often. So I don't know which of my brothers and sisters in the room can relate to that, but um, God, I ask you because you're the only one who can do it. You're the only one worth trusting with it. You're You're the only one worth being transparent to about it. That I want more of it. I want more of what you have for me now. Not looking to what's next. Not looking to the the greener grass somewhere else that's not actually greener at all. Father, would you help us via your Holy Spirit this morning and going forward to trust you and you alone in the areas that we haven't. The anxieties we haven't handed to you. The lack of peace that we hold on to. The areas we don't think we can conquer when you've called us conquerors. The struggles that we have that are just frankly hard to offer up to you. Would you teach us and help us learn to be content through them, offering it all to you. And thank you, Jesus, that you are so ready and willing to take them all. We give you this morning, Father, we lift up that any, anything that was said that's not of you, would you get rid of it? But the things that were of you, would they change our life? We love you. We trust you. And all God's people said, amen. You guys can stand up. We're going to worship one more time.